This week, we revisit a past episode that's a favorite of ours. So please sit back and enjoy this special best of presentation of Living the Call. Everybody should be able to identify the Catholic in the office if we're living our lives right. And that's not because you have an image of Our Lady at your desk. It's because of the way that you're speaking with others, treating others, even the way that you dress and present yourself. All of those things should convey there's something about you and there's something in your life that you have Christ in your life. How can we live out the universal call to holiness in our everyday, ordinary lives and be ambassadors of Christ in the world? Can we really live integrated, authentic Catholic lives and bring the gospel to all situations and places, even without ever explicitly witnessing to the faith? In this week's episode, Christopher Pereira discusses his book, Catholic Leadership for Civil Society, a practical guide on authentic lay leadership. He invites us to explore making a renewed commitment to the mission of the church through our active participation in all areas of secular life. Lay Catholics and professionals in particular have this tremendous opportunity to influence society for Christ as leaders in their own field. I came to understand this over a long process of getting to know one of my best friends today in heaven, and that is San Jose Maria Escriva. God invites us to be ambassadors to the world, right where he has planted us. Every moment of every day is an encounter with God and an opportunity to sanctify ourselves and the people around us. This is Living the Call. Christopher Pereira, welcome to the show, my brother. Thank you. Good to have you in LA. It's my pleasure, Deacon. Was it a good drive? I flew this time. So, oh, you flew. Uh, All right, it, was, it was a good flight. It was a short flight. Yes. Do you fly from Sky Harbor? I actually spent two days in San Francisco. I had other meetings there, and okay. I'm coming from San Francisco right now. Oh, so you flew from the Bay Area. Yes. Also a short flight, 45 Almost minutes. Very short. Yeah. yeah. And what's what, what are you doing in town? I mean, you're always here anyway, but I mean, you just got a bunch of things. You're doing this show, obviously, which is the most important thing. This but. was the most <laughs> important reason I came to town, actually. No, really, I have a few other meetings today, but this was the most important reason that brought me to Los Angeles. In San Francisco, I had the opportunity to speak in front of a group of young adults about the book and the, the mission of TLI. And let's see, I think, um, oh, I met with some representatives from the Archdiocese of uh, San Jose. Oh, nice. So that went well as well. That, and the book, by the way, that you just referenced, this is brand new. This came out in May, right? Last month? Yeah. And it's Catholic Leadership for Civil Society, a practical guide on authentic lay leadership. And you co-wrote this with Erin Monin, who's yes. your, your co-author. Yes. And she, she's involved with uh, Tepeyac? She's a graduate of Tepeyac Leadership, so she understands, absolutely understands the vision and has experienced the program herself. So she was a perfect partner because the, the book really encapsulates the vision and the work of TLI, of Tepeyac Leadership Initiative. So we're just thrilled that we can get it into the hands of people because it is both a tool and a resource that we can give the graduates of the program to take with them that they can always go back to. And at the same time, it is equally valuable to somebody who will never get a chance to go through the program. We believe that we are saying something simple. It's a simple message, but very important. And let's talk about that because we were, you were just starting to riff on this, and I always want to capture these moments, right, for the purposes of the show. I guess the, the sort of inspiration or the insight behind this particular book is this notion of thinking differently, right, about the laity. And some of that is attached, at least from what I've read, not the book yet, because I haven't, I confess, but I will, 
is this sense that when people come into a what, what's called sometimes a first fervor, they light up with the faith, they feel they found the pearl of great price, right? They get very excited and automatically a lot of them become very active in ministerial and parochial kind of settings, right? They have a thousand ministries. They want to go to every mass. They want to go to confession. You know, they want to do all these different things. And that's good, of course. But your book or your thesis is a little different. Yes, it is 100% the way you're describing it. We call it an experience of encounter or re-encounter with crisis, how we refer to it. When a Catholic, a lay Catholic, has an experience of encounter or re-encounter with Christ, typically what happens is he or she is so fired up for the faith. Our first instinct, I mean, I have been there myself, our first instinct is to go back to the parish. Because what we're looking for, what we're trying to do is to find our, our place. Okay, now we understand. We found this treasure. My Catholic faith, it was always there. I never I never really paid attention to it. Now, I really want to plug in. I want to find my place in the church. I want to serve the church. Mm. I want to grow in my relationship with Christ. All of those are good motivations, are good instincts. So we go back to the parish. And we start to sign up for every ministry that we can find, every group, every apostolate that offers us something to do. We sign up. We say, yes, we set up a tent and camp at the parish. It's true. But, I've seen it many times. <laughs> but that is not our vocation as lady. Mm. That is not our vocation. So we always clarify, should we be involved in our parish community? Absolutely, 100%. We should always be very supportive of our, of our pastors as well if they need us for anything. However, as lady, our primary vocation is to be ambassadors of Christ out in the world. Mm. So in addition to that, if God has blessed us with a professional career, with a college education in many cases, that was meant to be our field for mission. That mm. was our field of mission right there, our professional lives. So that's what we're trying to probably change the chip in the yeah. minds of lay Catholics. In a way, it's, it's, it's really a kind of a fulfillment or extension of what the, the Second Vatican Council proposed, right? Which was this very active participation of the, of the laity. But I guess to your point, when we think of active participation of the laity, we think of it in the context often of the parish experience yes. or of a ministerial experience. And we sort of forego the other sectors or avenues of our life, which can be very fruitful to obviously advance the gospel. Not always, and we can talk, we're going to talk about mm -hmm. this, not always the most welcoming places potentially, yes. but still critical to mm -hmm. advancing the message of Christ in the world. So we misunderstood the consul. Mm. That's what happened. We misunderstood the consul and every lay person wants to find his way or her way into the altar. That's that's how we uh, we read it. Unfortunately, that's not what what the council was calling us to. It was calling us to transform society from within. Yeah, we the lady have the opportunity to influence the world in such a way that not even the pope or our or the nuns or our bishops or priests can do it. We can transform the the human institutions of society from within, right? And what we're telling our readers and the participants of our program is that. You as a professional, God has given you that gift. You have, in addition, you have the opportunity to become and should seek to become an influential leader in society. Mm. I want to go back a second to what you said about misunderstanding of the council, because there's been, as you know, a lot of people on either side of this question. I think most people agree that the implementation of the Second Vatican Council was not ideally done, right? Or had things that, you know, 
left some to be desired of. But I'd never heard it positioned in this way that the idea of the activation of the laity created a sense of rushing people to the altar. I never thought about that. So the question is, do you think that that is behind some of the areas of maybe controversy or things we've seen with people wanting to be priests who are maybe women or, you know, people wanting to add some other touches or flourishes to liturgies or things like that. Do you think that that's behind some of these misapprehensions that people have? Yes, I believe that even deacon, and I say this with all due respect, even not authentic vocations to the diaconate. Mm. Because I believe that there there are some who are called to the diaconate, but then there are all of these, there's this army of men that are walking out of a cursillo weekend, and they all think they have a vocation for the weekend, for the diaconate. Yeah. Because what they really are doing is they're trying to find their place in the church. Mm. They don't understand that they already have their place in the church, whatever they are. If they are accountants, if they're lawyers, business people, teachers, that's their place in the church. They're supposed to sanctify that space. They should plug into the parish so that they can get the sacraments, receive the sacraments, continue to grow in their faith, right? Live in communion, be part of a parish community, but then go back out. It really evangelize where they are. I went to a conference a couple of weeks ago and I had a number of younger men, maybe in their mid-30s, approach me about the diaconate. And, you know, my answer, it's, I'm always very careful about how I speak about the diaconate on two fronts. Number one is I want to avoid the dynamic you just described, mm -hmm. which is people thinking, well, I'm already the sacristan or I'm already going to two or three masses a week. So the diaconate is like a graduation and I can get to do more. Or what happens more in this country, which is I've done all my work. I am now retired or about to retire. So what else is there to do but to become a deacon? And that second part, by the way, Christopher, might explain why, and these are real statistics, why 90%, no, I'm sorry, 95% of permanent deacons in the country are over 50. 80%, 8 out of 10, are over 60 years old. When the church says that you can be a deacon at 35, right? So I want to avoid both of those dynamics. At the same time, I want to encourage people who do hear an authentic calling mm -hmm. to serve in the diaconal ministry. Are you focused on service? Are you focused on preaching the word? Are you focused on acts of charity? So I want to do that. I want to balance those, yes. those, those realities. But I think that you're right, that in many cases, in particular, this is an American thing too. In the U.S., there is oftentimes this sense like, well, this is another achievement or something else to do. Or I'm retired and now I can give myself to God. And I don't think either of those is a really important or material step in the direction of the diaconate. Absolutely. There is an authentic vocation to the diaconate and people need to discern it. And this is why in my diocese, for example, the Diocese of Phoenix, we have a seven-year process for people to become a deacon. And throughout the process, you go through so much scrutiny because you really need to know if, if this is what God's calling you to do. And I have asked people, because I have also been invited to be part of the, the scrutiny groups that, that look at the profiles and make recommendations, and I have heard people say that they want to be deacons because everybody keeps telling them they should be deacons. <laughs> right, right. Because <laughs> they see them everywhere in the parish. They're already involved in so many different things. I myself, as the head of TLI, many times have been told, you should be a deacon. Mm. <laughs> and, and I tell them, I'm sorry, I don't feel called to the diaconate. That's right. So there is a true vocation, absolutely, and you can describe it better than, than myself. 
there are specific gifts and there's a charism. There's something that God has given a man that make him a good fit for this, this place in the church. But for most of the lady, that can't be it. That's right. Right? And in the book and in our program, we say the whole body of the lady, which is the majority of the Catholic church, right? The masses in the church are lay people. We cannot all be theologians, apologists, catechists. We cannot all occupy those spaces. Who are going to be? The accountants, the lawyers, the business people, the teachers, the nurses out in society who are being Christ to the to the world. Who? Sure. And even if you look at it just objectively, right? I mean, I think we have, let's take the Archdiocese of Los Angeles as an example. There's 5 million Catholics here. We have 400 deacons and, you know, I think maybe eight or 900 priests, I think. And you think about the Catholic to clergy ratio, and there's no scenario where even if you doubled or tripled those numbers, that that would be enough to really minister to the people of God in this, in this area. Mm-hmm. And so the Holy Spirit knows what he's doing, right? The importance of the laity and playing those roles in the world are critical. And I think one of the big obstacles, and I wonder how you think about this, is the issue of kind of compartmentalized life. Right. In other words, and this is something that maybe going back to your Univision days, because many folks don't know you actually had a, a long career in media, but it's so easy for us in our culture to keep things in boxes and in compartments. And so if I'm at work, I'm at work. If I'm at church, I'm at church. If I'm at home, I'm at home. And while some of that is understandable, you can see how that, that could create obstacles to really inspiring a growth in the church and a proper sense of evangelizing people, because you're off during certain times, and you're on in certain times. And that's, I think, a cultural phenomenon that we contend with more in this country than maybe others. I don't know. What do you think? I agree. Perhaps certain conversations, certain attitudes, certain things that we can do at work that would not be appropriate. So this this has to be clear. Some things would not be appropriate. It wouldn't be appropriate to pull out our Bibles and begin (laughs) speaking about the gospel to every person in the office in the middle of the workday. Right, some things will not be appropriate. Because of that, we're careful, and sometimes we err on, on the side of caution, and we don't do anything, mm. and we don't bring our faith into the work. But not only should we do, but we should be strategic about how we do that. Right. So, I believe that evangelizing or helping advance the mission of the church is not just about sharing our testimony or, or giving witness uh, through our own lives with others. We should do that. That's absolutely a must. But helping advance the mission of the church is also about strategically looking for and creating a more fertile ground for the church to go, for our pastors to go out and evangelize. So, mm. so what does that mean? It means that if I sit at the board of an organization, I'm going to make sure that the policies that get enacted yeah. in that organization would not be an obstacle, would not uh, create blocks, block the way of the church so that, for example, we can have prayer at school or mm-hmm. maybe employees or students can have a Bible study after work or things of this sort, right? There are so many things that are happening in the culture and have been happening over the past few decades, Deacon, that Christians, we feel so frustrated and concerned about And we don't realize that for each of those changes to take place, to have taken place, there was a time when decisions were made around the table. Mm. And my question is, where were the Catholics when those decisions were made? If they were at the table, 
they were not well-formed or they were not courageous enough to speak up, right? And I'm talking about things, for example, such as the horrendous, and I'm sorry, but I think perhaps you agree with me, uh, curriculums that we could find in some public school sure. districts here in California, mm. right? Some of these things and the, the wrong bioethical decisions being made in the medical field, all of these things started with a decision being made at a boardroom and there weren't enough Catholics in there. I totally agree with that. And I also think it's it's also a combination of both the things that people don't do, but also the things that they allow, right? So in other words, you have situations where you can make a positive contribution to a conversation and say, here's the direction we should head. But there's other scenarios where people in power and authority have an opportunity to say, we're not going to do something. And sometimes the not doing something is equally as powerful as the, we are going to do this thing. And I think sometimes, at least I did in my professional career, I saw many opportunities, and I took them myself, of stopping certain things from becoming rather than enacting something. Both of those can be powerful. Absolutely. 100%. I have a friend, actually, it's a common friend, who is a journalist, an anchor in, in her hometown. She's very well known in her community. She's also a producer in her newscast. And so she tells me, as a Catholic... I cannot push my own agendas, but what I what I can do is not let anybody else push their agendas either. So yeah. I, I I seek to be impartial, and I definitely block anything that is trying to convey ideology or influence our audience the, the wrong way. And so she's absolutely doing what you just described. In your own kind of walk, in your own path, particularly when you were more on the secular side, right? We both have a media background. In fact, we worked for the same company at one point. Can you talk about, like, when the journey or the path became more clear to you personally that, or just kind of walk us through a little bit of that process where maybe as you were, it was becoming more clear the value that you could have in the, in, in the world, maybe your own calling, your own vocation and how that maybe conflicted with what you were doing or led you ultimately to where you are today. What well, what was that process like? Sure. Well, I, I wish I could say that it, it didn't take place during my media days. At Deacon, as a matter of fact, just recently, some friends, talking to some friends, I realized that when I was in the secular media, I was one of those journalists. I, I had not even thought about it until just recently, but I was one of those journalists that would even be antagonistic, mm. antagonistic to the church. Did you do so, it consciously? Or no, did you, I didn't yeah. do it consciously, but I realized just recently that I was Paul. Mm. <laughs> I had been persecuting my own church. For some time, for a brief period of time during my, my days as a journalist, I was definitely not um, helping advance the mission of, ch of the church in any way like I talk about today, right? Trying to be strategic about it and, and making the decisions that would help the church in that way. I came to understand this idea, and I think it's the central idea that drives the work that I do and is contained in the book, that... Lay Catholics and professionals in particular have this tremendous opportunity to influence society for Christ as leaders in their own field. I came to understand this over a long process of getting to know one of my best friends today in heaven, and that is St. Jose Maria Escriva. Mm. I believe that it is all about reading him, watching him speak. He's one of the few saints that I can say that you can actually watch speak. You can go on YouTube. Go on YouTube, yeah. and there's tons of videos sure. that you can find of him, right? 
I believe it is really through through that experience that I have understood that this is what we're called to do as lady. We're called to be in the world, not living in a Catholic bubble, which is not the same as to as neglecting our, our, our faith lives and not being involved in the parish, but we should be in the world primarily, being light of the light of Christ in the world and helping create opportunities for the gospel to take root, right? And each of us can see what that means in our own professions. It's different for everybody. But that is what we are supposed to do. St. Jose Maria, Deacon, we just spoke about the Second Vatican Council. St. Jose Maria saw this way in advance of the consul. He was ahead he of did. his time. In like the 40s, 30s or 40s. He was yeah. living ahead of his time. Yeah. He's, he was, he's a, Prophetic a, voice. a visionary yeah. man. But if you would ask him, he would tell you, I'm only talking to you about the things that the early Christians were doing. Of course. This is how the early Christians did it. They can, you know, sure, we, we hear the stories of the martyrs and we admire them, right? Some, some of them were known because they gave their life for the faith. But most of the early Christians... They didn't give their life for the faith. Most of them, they lived exemplary lives, right? If they were, if someone was a carp- carpenter or a tent maker, well, that person was known for making the best tents in town, mm-hmm. right? Just like St. Paul. Just like St. Paul, mm-hmm. exactly. So those people had this reputation for professionalism and excellence, even in those early days, the days of the primitive church. And so so whatever they had in their life, their joy, their solidarity to, towards one another and towards complete strangers, that was attractive to people. People saw there was something special about them and people began to look up to them, right? And eventually the question always comes, what is the secret to your joy, right? And that's all we're talking about. That's what St. Jose Maria was talking about. We're talking about trying to become the best version of ourselves in every dimension, which doesn't mean having an unrealistic expectation of becoming perfect. That's not what we're talking about. It's just striving to become the best version of ourselves because along the way, we will find holiness. We will find a path to holiness. I'm always conscious, Christopher, of the people who listen to this show because we have people all over the spiritual spectrum and, frankly, the religious spectrum that listen to this show. And so maybe more for their benefit, because I'd like to know how you got into St. Jose Maria Escriba, but, like, who is he? What did he do? So St. Jose Maria, a Spanish priest, now a saint in heaven, who founded Opus Dei, founded, founded the prelature of the Catholic Church. And it's basically, I would say, a family within the Catholic family that has a mission of reminding the rest of the church that we're all called to holiness, that the universal call to holiness is precisely that. Universal is for all. And many, many lay people today still are discovering that they are also called to holiness, right? Some people still today believe that this is something just for the clergy, just for the priests or the nuns. And St. Jose Maria explained that through our ordinary life, through the things that we already are doing, this mm-hmm. is what I, I found really fascinating and genius about the message of St. Jose Maria, is that we don't need to leave the place where we are right where we are in life, where we work, where we live, within our own lives, we can sanctify ourselves, we can sanctify the world. I can be the best husband I can make. I can help my wife do the dishes or the laundries. I can help the laundry. I can help my children do the homework, right? I can finish my work on time and pay attention to detail in the ways that I turn it in 
and then see if I can be of help to my coworkers, right? And all of those little things, ordinary opportunities throughout the day, throughout the week, all of them bring me closer to God. And moreover, each of them, St. Jose Maria would say, are encounters with God. Mm. Each of these little things, yeah. right, are encounters with God. And all it takes is that we try to do them to the best of our capacity, that we put love into what we're doing, and that we offer them up to God. And there's a deep theological insight or premise in that, which, by the way, the entire thing you just said is ever ancient, right? This is Catholic thinking from the very beginning, but the idea that what you're doing at this moment is important just because it's happening in the present. In other words, right now we're sitting here recording this show. It's not accidental. It's not a coincidence. We're here for a reason that God willed from the beginning of time. And so we should take that seriously. But we do things all the time. Wash the dishes, walk the dogs, do the landscaping, have a conversation with a stranger. And all of those moments are in the moment. And that is what God wants us to pay attention to, sanctify the everyday, which Mm -hmm. is what you said. And so that's what I love about Opus Dei is that focus on the ordinary, the moment, because it's born in the present, which is really the only time that actually exists. Absolutely. And and the moment that we discovered that, at least that was the case for me, it really transformed my life. It transformed my life because I realized I didn't have to wait yeah. to be given this special role at work. I didn't have to wait to become someone, to get somewhere. No, exactly where I am. And it doesn't really matter what I do. If my job is to go out and sweep the streets, I can sanctify myself through doing that. Mm. And the world, too. The world. Exactly. Yeah, no, absolutely. How did you get into him? Did you, I mean... San Jose Maria. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Deacon, it's funny because a few years ago, a movie came out by the name of The Da Vinci Code. Sure. And, <laughs> Some uh, people it, will remember their... They have. <laughs> they only have that in their background with Opus Dei. That's their, and, the, the, the depth of their knowledge on it. And the movie is based on the book, and both the movie and the book are completely wrong about what Opus Dei is. But back then, I didn't know what Opus Dei was. And I was, my my curiosity was picked through the movie. I never actually watched the movie, but I read so much about articles about the movie and the book. I went, okay, what is this Opus Dei that, that this, everybody's talking about? I looked it up and it was all open. They have a website and it's all right there. Of you go course. and the website tells you exactly what it is. And when I saw it, when I read what the the spirituality was, it just made sense to me. Gosh, these are just people who are serious about living their their faith fully and 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 answering to that universal call to holiness. And and I saw structured and I'm very I'm a very organized person. I've always been a structured person. So it just made sense to me. Mm. But I also read a lot of bad press. A lot of bad press, a lot of bad things. And these are the same people that just simply don't don't like the church. Well, you will find them. They're they're out there. So I was a little confused. I remember going to my pastor and asked him, Father Alonso, you know, for the longest time I've been praying to God that he will help me to be a saint. I've been praying, I've been asking him, help me to be a saint, God. And now I have encountered this organization that I, I feel attracted to. They, they have events here. They, they do retreats here in, in, in Phoenix. I don't know if I should go because I've also read all of these bad things about them. Mm. So, so I'm conflicted. And then Father Alonso told me, well, Christopher, what can I say? I've been a cooperator of Opus Dei for the past five years. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you got, you lucked out there with, uh, with the priest you decided yeah, to ask. Well, I don't think it was luck. Yeah, of course, right? of course. So, so that's it. 
that's it. He, I mean, that that did it for me. I just went ahead and and began to going to the retreats. And and I tell you, um, I I have mostly benefit from it. I haven't put much into it. I'm not that involved or, or anything like that. But I have mostly benefit from the wonderful retreats and talks and circles and and all of the formation, this terrific formation that they offer. Mm. You've talked a lot about you know, living and sanctifying through our vocation in all these different fields and how that is the the kind of uh, the mantle of responsibility, the charge that we have, the great commission that we have is to go out into our own moment or role or time and place and, and, and live that. I'm wondering, especially now that you are working actively in this, like what continue to be the obstacles or things that you see pop up that keep or prevent people from either understanding this mission or living it out? Obviously, we live in a secularist, very secular and antagonistic culture that doesn't really, not only is not open to the gospel and the values of the gospel, but is actively against it, right? Yeah. So it seems that today it is Catholics who feel that they need to go into the closet, right? Everybody else has come out of the closet. But now a lot of Catholics are living like crypto-Catholics, mm. are living in the closet, and they are afraid. They are almost afraid, and in many instances, because they have seen real scenarios where people have lost their jobs for being too open or outspoken about their faith. So that I see as a big one, and a lot of times people that come through the program or even now readers of the book ask me, so so what are we supposed to do then, Christopher? Are we just supposed to be completely out and, and just let everybody know that we're Catholic? And I tell them, listen, you should never compromise your values. You should never have to deny who you are. But you also want to be strategic. Our Lord wants us to be smart about how we help advance the mission of the church. Be strategic about it. You don't always, I'm sorry, but I, I do speak this way. You don't always need to show all of your cards to everybody right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. You need to read the room. You need to see where you are and be smart about which will be the best way to influence that space, that circle, wherever you are for Christ, which is the best way to do it? Because it's not always going to be for you to get up with a Bible and start, <laughs> right, start the praying the rosary in the exactly. conference room. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I mean, I, I was going to ask you about that balance because, you know, on one side, scripture tells us repeatedly about being the leaven, right? About going into these maybe inhospitable, unwelcoming places and bringing the gospel forward. And sometimes we don't even ask, well, bringing the gospel, whose benefit is that for? I think a lot of people look at it as like, we're trying to make God happy, or we're trying to do it for ourselves. But I think part of that mission is also because God has many children, and he wants all of them, right? Even these people who might be antagonistic to the faith. So how do you balance, right, this idea? On one side, you have people who may be more of the ones you were describing, maybe the more Benedict option crowd who are people who are like, hey, look, we have to grab our best five Catholic friends and go all move to the country and just have that and let the world be what it is. We'll pray for you from a distance, kind of like a monastic sort of thing. And then you have other people who may be on the side of, let's just meet everybody where they are and love them and we're never going to make anybody feel uncomfortable. Like what is that balance that you would advise somebody working in a a leadership capacity? Well, what I would say is that there are two levels at which we should be functioning, two levels. And and I'm always speaking to, and particularly speaking because this is my audience, I don't know if it's necessarily the audience of your show, 
but it's Catholic professionals. That's that's who I work with. That's that's who we serve. We should always be operating at two levels. The first level, most practicing Catholics understand, which is the level of living a living the faith in such a way that that we attract others and we let others that were Christian simply by the way that we live, not mm-hmm. by not even by saying it, right? Giving a good witness of life. Most people understand that level and that is important. And a lot of times when people come in across our program, they ask, they tell us, oh, I get it, I get it. So your program is about finding ways to witnessing for the, for the gospel, witnessing for Christ in your work. And we say, yes, but that's only the beginning. Mm. So that's the first level. The next level, and this is where where we we see many people making the connections that they hadn't before, is that as Catholic professionals, we have amazing opportunities to influence the world. Amazing opportunities, right? We talk about leadership. Mm. And most Catholics, they understand, they think, and this is also a misconception, that because we're called to be humble, and it is true, we're called to be humble, they shouldn't aspire to grow in professional prestige or they shouldn't be not too ambitious. And we tell them that's absolutely wrong. If your heart is in the right place and you're doing everything to give God the glory and not for, for selfish reasons, growing in professional prestige, seek, seeking to become an influential leader in your own space mm. will only give you better influence over others so that they can come to Christ. So it's absolutely the opposite. They all the, all the way around, right? So, so we must seek those opportunities to grow as leaders in our own spaces so that we can influence others as well. I had a conversation just this last week. I was in Miami and I met somebody who I met in a secular role, is not Catholic. I, I won't go into the details, but is not living or was not living a, a life of virtue in any respect. But it's somebody who had known professionally for a number of years. And I had lunch with this person, and this person, just to kind of give you the short version, had a kind of Damascus kind of experience, okay? Severe illness during the recovery, realized I'm going to die someday, and now is asking questions about God, et cetera. And he messaged me because he, he saw that I had put that I was going to be in Florida and asked me if I, if I could sit with him. And the last conversation I expected to have was about this kind of thing with this particular person. But... The one thing he said to me that really struck out, and it hits exactly the point that I think you just made about sort of living the first level, living an integrated kind of Catholic life, is he told me, you know, I always, even before I knew that you were a a faithful person, there was something about just how you comported yourself and the the things you said that I always knew that there was something else there. Mm -hmm. And now it makes sense is the way he would say it. Now it makes sense, right? So even before... I talked to him about anything approaching the transcendent God, et cetera. He had a sense that this is a place, meaning me, that he could have that kind of conversation to begin with. Do you see what I'm saying? And honestly, I don't recall, I can't put my finger on what it was that I could have said or did, but I was maybe living in that authentic way or as close as I understand it. And that gave him permission, if you will, to approach me about this at the moment when he was ready. Right. And I think I always took for granted that, you know, I thought if we, you know, if we, if we're not actively evangelizing, if we're not actively responding to a question of the faith, then we're not really witnessing 
and and I was very wrong about that. And that's not to say that we shouldn't witness explicitly, mm-hmm. and there are moments for yeah. that as well. But this notion of doing what you know, back to uh, Opus Day, of of kind of living that that integrated life in no matter what it is that you're doing, was a signal bright enough, at least in this particular case, for that person to go, there's somebody that I can talk to about this kind of stuff that I'm now dealing with. And I thought that was really interesting, you know, and here I am, I'm like, I'm no spring chicken and I'm coming to these conclusions now, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's amazing, but that is that is the first level. I think that's that's the level that most Catholics get to identify. You were certainly living it. And most Catholics should be living their faith in such a way that without even speaking about it, others would know, okay, he's a Christian, she's a Christian. Everybody should be able to identify the Catholic in the office Mm. if we're living our lives right. And that's not because you have an image of Our Lady at your desk. It's because of the way that you're speaking with others, treating others, even the way that you dress and present yourself. Sure. All of those things should convey there's something about you and there's something in your life that you have Christ in your life. It's that first level that I think most Christians can get to and understand the next level, the second level at which we should always also be operating is a level of seeing our own professional lives as the opportunity to advance the mission of the church by influencing others as leaders. That's the one that maybe not everybody has connected the dots with because the opportunities to influence the world, Deacon, are, are just amazing. All of the things that we could do for the church if we only made that connection. I talk about this all the time. I mean, you think about the kind of influence and authority or power that business leaders have today and compare it with other moments in history. I don't know that you could find an equal moment in history. Maybe you could if you went back a thousand years and said, okay, in the area of military, there's a lot of influence or whatever. I don't know, you know, uh, shipping companies and people who, you know, are going all over the world with their goods and produce or whatever. But I think today in particular, we're living in a moment where leadership, and especially in the kind of business context, has huge influential power in this country. And then you have to look at how influential this country is on the rest of the world. Exactly. Right. And so you think of it, to use your word, strategically, and you're like, well, where else would I start but here? I mean, it seems, it seems super logical to do. All of the work that we do is in English, but as you know, I'm a native Spanish speaker, and, and people ask me, when are you going to have the program in Spanish? And, and I tell them, listen, I love Spanish. It's my preferred language, but if you want to influence the world, you have to do things in English. This is, this is really, this is just reality. So it's yes. like Greek or French at some point in, you know, the lingua franca. As yeah, they it's say, the lingua right? franca. It's like Latin was at some point for the of Roman course. Empire, right? So, yeah, we, it's, it's the way we have to do it. We talk in the book, we have a whole chapter, Deacon, and in our program, an entire session on board service, dedicated mm. just to board service. Mm. Because as we tell our audience, board service is where leadership happens. What we mean when we say, you should seek to become an influential leader in your own space. It doesn't get more concrete than that. We're, we, we're talking about board service. Now, our definition for board is a little broad. We broaden the definition because we definitely mean real boards, governance boards, advisory boards, fundraising boards, nonprofit, for-profit, faith-based, non-faith-based, all boards, real boards. However, we also mean 
your local Rotary Lions Club, your local Homeowners Association, Parent Teacher Association, any, any association, professional association or guild, a local public school district, we mean politics too. Wherever people are sitting around a table making decisions, we need to get more Catholics in there. And that's also some, that's a concept that people in the business world understand very logically. It's like you've got your sort of individual contributor level, and there's a moment in your career where many people become leaders of leaders. And so what a board allows you to do is be influential on influential people. Yes. So you get this network effect, right, hopefully, which is you're now um, activating all of these various sort of tributaries that can have an impact on the broader culture and it's something that, again, from a secular standpoint, people understand, but I think that what you're doing is bringing that into a, a more church-based understanding of it, but the, the reality should hold true, right? That, it, that you can have this additional network effect by virtue of leading or influencing leaders and influencers. Absolutely. And that we have found to be our mission. God has blessed us. We've been able to get the message out to many people. We're excited about the book because... It's, it's definitely allowing us to get the message out to even more people. But I believe that if there was a time in the history of the church when we needed more principled, ethical, virtuous, lay Catholic leaders mm. in civil society, in the civil arena, that time is now. Obviously, you get all this inspiration ultimately from the source of all inspiration, which is God himself. But where did this... How was this desire for leadership, influencing leaders, the importance of leadership, how was that developed on a sort of human dimension? Like, you know, your background, did you have, were you, did you come up around strong leaders? Who gave you your faith? I mean, where did, where did, <laughs> or where did that come from? Yeah, Deacon, I was always a believer, but I, I think it was the marriage preparation program in Phoenix that brought me back to the faith mm. in sense of, how did I find this mission or felt called to this, which I, I consider my mission yeah. to form leaders? And it's clear. That's why um, I'm asking. A few years ago, this is the origin story for the work that we're doing with Tepeyac Leadership. A few years ago, as a representative of the Diocese of Phoenix, I already found myself, I, I was working for Bishop Olmsted as the director of the Hispanic Mission Office. I was sent to a secular civic leadership development program in Phoenix, in Arizona. That experience opened my eyes to the reality of civic leadership development in the world, in the United States. Mm. This concept, Deacon, has been around since the 70s. Forever, yeah. Right? Every major city has these programs. They're all secular. They take on names like Leadership Los Angeles, Leadership Philadelphia. And what they're doing is they're forming professionals and sending them out and really placing them in key leadership positions in their own communities. When you look at it, it's a noble concept. We're forming leaders. We're investing in leaders. What could be wrong with that, right? Unfortunately, six years ago, I also discovered that most of these programs were training leaders with values that ran directly opposed to the gospel, directly yeah. opposed. Not to even Catholic neutral. Teaching. Not yeah. even neutral, yeah. opposed. So no wonder we have the leaders that we have in society today. So six years ago, I went to my bishop and I, told, I presented this in, in front of him. Bishop, look at this. This is what's happened. This is what I've discovered. Is This is not an right. idea. It's just not being oriented, right? And I think we can do it better because we could make it Catholic. Bishop Olmsted is much wiser than me, and he had so much more to contribute. And together, we developed Tepeyac leadership. This is how it started. And it's almost course, like the containers 
that the secular world gives us oftentimes are well built, but it's what goes in them that is the issue. But sometimes we throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? We're like, yes. oh, it's from the secular world. We can't use it. But, you know, Christian history shows us you can baptize, Christianize, sanctify everything. Dico, I'll tell you because because I remember the words of Bishop Olmsted. He, he actually replied to me and said, Christopher, the church has been baptized in pagan concepts for a long time. That's right. There is no reason why we can't do it. There's a, there's even, you could even say there's a, there's only reasons to do it, exactly. right? Just based on, on, a, on Christian <laughs> exactly. history. No, I mean, it's a really interesting, obviously concept, but I think it's also part of something bigger, something broader. And maybe it's something that the Holy Spirit has been emphasizing. This is the word I use often emphasis because it's not new. It's just an emphasis, right? But I think it's something that maybe is being emphasized, especially over the last 50, 60 years, Right that maybe we've misapplied, misappropriated, misunderstood. But the the impetus of the Holy Spirit is that, you know, we have to go out and sanctify the world. And all of these different avenues of life are part of that sanctification roadmap. But we 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 tend to erase or forget about some of these because we don't see them fitting into this, these avenues or channels where the faith is expected or welcome or whatever. But that's the challenge of being a Christian. It's like going into these spaces and places, oftentimes that are not as welcoming as we would expect, and finding a way to bring the gospel into all those different areas. You know, I talk about it all the time that like, and you, I'm sure you run into this too, when you meet people who have a, a lot of authority and a lot of power, a lot of leadership. I mean, maybe some of these people that have gone through some of these secular civic leadership programs, they need the gospel too, in a way. They need to have that witness as well. And how do you bring it to them if they're not coming to the parish, if they're not engaging with any kind of theological writing, if they haven't had a near-death experience, if they haven't had a Damascus moment? You know, you're the person who can actually live that gospel experience for them. And then by extension— bring it to others. Absolutely. And in, in these secular leadership programs, you know, they are so rich in content. There is so much that they offer, right? But all of them offer, can only offer technique. Yeah. Because they are so secular. They're, they, they are completely missing out the spirituality concept. And now they are trying to incorporate things like mindfulness, for example, which is a desperate attempt to bring some type of spiritual dimension to leadership, but they, they really are, are empty when it comes to that, which I believe is the central aspect of leadership, right? If you don't have that moral compass, if you don't have a reason for being, deacon, and if you don't have a proper understanding of these two things, which I have found to be the two concepts in which the world seems to be very confused about today, identity and purpose, mm. then how can you be a leader? You don't know who you are. You don't know why you're here. You've touched on a big subject there. A couple of weeks ago, I was talking to Bishop Andrew Cousins, who's leading the National Eucharistic Revival for the USCCB. And we talked about that right now in our culture, there are sort of equal parts, this sort of sense of scientism in a way, which is sort of making a religion out of science and then at the same time, which touches on your wellness and mindfulness kind of characterization, you have this sort of over-spiritualization of certain things. And it's happening at the same time, right? Where you have people who are CEOs very focused on mindfulness and wellness and all these different things. And those are the same people oftentimes who will look at, 
you know, scientific data and hold it up as, as gospel, even though that can change from week to week. It's a really interesting dichotomy, right? Because you would think if I live in this sort of scientism world, I would deny these kind of senses like mindfulness. What even is that? I can't measure it. I can't weigh it. I can't smell it. What, what is it, right? Can't quantify it. And I think that we are in the midst of that in a way, this kind of weird duality where on one side we're sort of seeking to understand the world strictly by what we can quantifiably understand. And then at the other side saying, oh, there's something else and we're going to wrap this kind of mantle of wellness or mindfulness around it. And it, it kind of seems like at odds with each other. None of it makes really any sense in the absence of transcendent understanding. It is absolutely true, Deacon. It is because we were made by God and for God and, and we'll be restless until we rest in Christ. And people that don't have a relationship with God feel that emptiness and they need to fill it with something. They need to fill the void with something. Mindfulness, that's what mindfulness is, is doing. Mindfulness is the most recent in a very long line of trends, very much oriental, influenced by some of these practices like yoga or Reiki, that really come from Asia that are occupying this space that has been left by people that even have the Christian heritage, but are completely ignorant of what it means or, or what it can add to their lives, right? What do we have? I wrote an article about this recently, and I, I wrote it in a way that referred to it as the Christians of all times. The Christians of all times, the Christians from that the world that we remember known as Christendom. They didn't have mindfulness, but what did they have? They, they, they would go to daily mass. They will practice an examination of conscience at night. They will seek spiritual direction, right? And, and I'm not saying that these things are not done today, but it's now a minority who, who does it and understands that all of these things combine everything that the living of the Catholic faith fully does for us is what the world is trying to replicate with practices such as mindfulness. It is. And replication is a good way to talk about it. It is a reinvention in a way of religion. I saw a McKinsey report recently, McKinsey is a big consulting firm, that quantified the wellness industry, the mindfulness and wellness industry, $1.6 trillion industry. And, you know, I was thinking about it that in a weird way, the secular world is a barometer of the gaps that exist in the religious landscape in a way, because there's so much energy around this precisely because we've essentially jettisoned the faith. We don't live and practice religion. And so what do we do? We're longing for something desperately. And if we can't go to that, we're going to try to make something in that image, even though it's a far inferior yes. image. It's a caricature of what it was, right? And we talk about things today, such as emotional intelligence and and all of these things that are, are, are supposed to make us better. and, and Myers-Briggs uh, profiles. You exactly. know, are you, are you an introvert or extrovert? All these other things. But Deacon, what did the Christians of all times used to say or used to focus on? They would, they would focus on virtue. They would focus on, on the four cardinal virtues. They would focus on trying to grow in character. And we would do things such as mortification, right? And offers sacrifices, and we would understand that these things will help us better. They will help us have a little more self-control and temperance and treat others with kindness. And all of these things that are the life of the faith are really supposed to help us find peace. Who is the, who's the audience for the book? I mean, if I'm, if I'm looking at it and I say Catholic leadership, 
for Civil Society, A Practical Guide on Authentic Lay Leadership. There's hallmarks of that that make it very relevant to a Catholic or somebody who wants to live a Catholic life. If you were to plot it on a pie graph, what percentage of this audience are people who aren't Catholic or who might be interested in what makes for a Catholic leader? In other words, who, who do you think is the audience for this book? Well, actually, Deacon, I, I ha have not foreseen capturing any, anyone who's not interested in the Catholic faith. Mm -hmm. So if that would happen, that would definitely be a great grace from God. But I see those Catholics who are looking to find their space in the church, their role in the church, that they really want to give back to the faith, they want to serve, they want to come closer to God and help advance the mission of the church and don't know how. Mm. They don't know how. The one group that I identified that probably will not benefit much from the book would be a lay Catholic person that works for the church and has already made up his mind that will, wants to build a career working in the church for the church. Mm. Because the, the book is all about going out. It's about going out of our Catholic bubbles and influencing the world. Yeah. And I think that um, I know we've got to get you on your way to your next meeting and, and I've got to go catch a plane. So an hour goes fast when you're having fun. But I think that and having not read it, but knowing you and knowing about your background and having read you talk about and speak about the book, I do think that it can help capture that sense of what to do with our fervor, what to do with our desire to serve God and to apply that in the area that we're involved in for the benefit of ourselves, the gospel, our brothers and sisters, et cetera. And that's my great hope, that people reading this can be animated, can be amplified, can be sent out of a canon to go do exactly that and to realize that you have this sort of, yes, liturgical experience and a parochial experience, but you also have a role to play as a citizen of the world in wherever your proper time and place and office is. And that's what we're called to live. That's my great hope for this book and for the prosperity of everything that you're doing, obviously with the book, with your own ministries and with the act which you lead, because I think it's really important for the world right now. Thank you so much, Deacon. I All really right. appreciate it. Christopher, are then, as a final ode, people who listen to the show know that we have a segment called Wait What? And it's how we end the show with three peculiar questions that are custom tailored for the guest in mind. So are you ready to play Wait What? Wait, what? Yes. Okay. Wait, what? <laughs> Just tell me how to proceed. All yeah. right. Well, here's how you proceed. You answer the questions, my okay. friend. All right. So the very first one is a fill-in-the-blank question. All right. So we're going to start with that. And this question should actually be very close to home for you. So in 2018, the English edition of Vocation of the Business Leader was released by the Vatican's Dicastery for Promoting Integral Human Development. The document, which was a first of its kind, speaks of the vocation of the businessman or woman who acts in a variety of ranges of business institutions, for-profit, non-profit, and all the challenges and opportunities that the business world offers them in a variety of different contexts. The leader of this initiative, Christopher, who was critical to its formation and the additions that followed, and who many actually regard as a potential future candidate for the papacy, is a Ghanaian cardinal, and his name is blank. Cardinal Turkson. Nice. Very good. That's right. <laughs> Ghana is a great country, by the way. I've had the opportunity to visit it. And I Cardinal Turkson from his writing and from seeing him on different media, but uh, he's a very, very good man and critical to this initiative. So I thought, I'm sure you've read that document. That document is part of our curriculum in the program. There you go. There you go. So Cardinal Peter Turkson. All right. Second question, multiple choice one. All right. Christopher, which of these is false? 
about your home country of Peru? Is it A, Machu Picchu is believed to be the oldest site occupied by humans in the Americas? Is it B, 75% of the world's alpaca population lives in Peru? Or is it C, roasted guinea pig is the national dish of Peru, which is false? Oh, gosh, Deacon, I think more than one is false, sir. Okay, all right. <laughs> Tell me. Maybe, maybe I've got it wrong. Uh, so I don't believe Machu Picchu is the oldest site. Okay. That, that will be the one that I feel is the most wrong. Okay, which is the um, second most I'm, wrong. I wasn't sure that guinea pig was, it, it could be a national dish, but I thought that ceviche came before. Oh, um, interesting. Um, well, you would be the expert pig. on that. I, so <laughs> it, it is true that it is A, a but it is national. false. Caracaralsupe uh, <laughs> is the oldest site, apparently, which I wasn't familiar with, occupied by human. Its history dates back 5,000 years. Well, the thing is that there were many civilizations before the Incas. Mm. So that already takes care of Machu Picchu because Machu Picchu was built by the Incas. By the Incas. And there were so many civilizations that came before. But according to my data, and again, you're the expert, but um, cuy, which is roasted guinea pig, is, okay, a national dish of Peru. Of course, ceviche is incredible. My favorite cuisine in all South America is Peruvian cuisine, as I think you will know. We'll still, we're going to give you that one, of okay. course, because you got it right. So you're batting a thousand, Christopher. Here's the last question. And people who listen to the show know there's always a time machine question. So here goes. Christopher, you get a chance to travel forward in time to the year 2255, okay? 200 and some odd years into the future. Human development has advanced at a rate proportional to human dissatisfaction. Religion is still practiced, but only the Catholic Church has a thriving Christian community in the world, and that is limited to the developing world. You eventually meet up with some innovative members of the church who are planning a trip to Mars. The planet has been colonized for decades, but has no religious presence and is exclusively used by wealthy individuals who have built decadent resorts on the planet and academics who are stationed there to study it. You're invited by your new Catholic friends to leave the earth on a 10-year mission to bring the gospel to these wealthy aristocrats and elites on the red planet. Christopher, do you go? I would go because if I see that the Lord is putting in front of me an opportunity to take the gospel somewhere, I, I would not say no to something if I, if I feel that it is the Lord that takes me. However, I have to say that I will feel that, feel that the mission would be almost a mission impossible, but those are the ones that, that our Lord typically <laughs> helps us accomplish through His grace because evangelizing the wealthy might be one of the most mm. difficult. <laughs> Easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Yeah. Well, I mean, in terms of impossible tasks, taking a couple of fishermen from the Middle East and having them share the gospel with the entire planet would have been pretty impossible if somebody told that to them back then. Absolutely, yes. Well, awesome. Christopher, thank you for playing the game. Thank you for being here. What a great privilege it is to have you. We're going to include all the information, too, on getting in touch with TLI on the book, which is Catholic Leadership for Civil Society, A Practical Guide on Authentically Leadership. We'll have all this information in the show notes. Any final words? No, just thank you very much. This was fun. I hope that people get to read the book. Awesome. Well, if you're listening to our voice, that means it's time to subscribe to this show. Share this show, share this episode with somebody who you think can benefit from it based on the conversation. And we'll see you again all next time on Living the Call. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.